Well, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. I'm excited to bring the Word of God and excited to start on a new chapter of ministry together. Would you go with me now to the Lord in prayer? God, we ask as we come to your word now that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Give us fresh faith in the completeness of your word and its goodness for us. May we see that it's good for everything that we need in life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll invite you to open your Bible with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, we'll be looking at the sufficiency of God's word, the sufficiency of the word. So I'll read here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 14, I'll read down through the end of the chapter in verse 2, in, in, uh, at, of 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This morning I'd like us to consider together this idea that God's word is enough. God's word is enough. At the end of World War II, mid-20th century, 1944-1945, Allied forces were going throughout Europe and they were freeing prisoners and prisoners of war and, and also prisoners who had been kept in concentration camps, many Jews, but and many other political or religious prisoners there as well. And as they would roll in and through Germany and through these camps, what they found there shocked them. Often as they'd go through, they'd find evidence of people who had once lived and were no longer there. So in one camp, perhaps the most famous concentration camp of all, Auschwitz or Auschwitz, they found hundreds of thousands of men's suits just lying in piles. Some 800,000 sets of women's clothing, evidence of people that had been exterminated, 14,000 pounds of human hair. But as soldiers who entered those camps recounted the events later, Often, the thing that stuck in their minds the most clearly was not the evidence of people who were no longer around, but actually the survivors. Because the survivors themselves were grossly malnourished. Many of them had no strength to even move. They'd lay there. They couldn't even lift their heads. Their bodies were just skin and bones, literally just wasting away. They were down to nothing. The starvation and the cruelty they had experienced there was something that marked the people who saw them for the rest of their lives. Well, I was imagining what it might be like for us to walk into church and we could kind of see spiritually kind of the nutrition meter on everyone. What would it be like if sort of over everyone's head there was a hologram and it said, you know, healthy, eating well, or starving, malnourished? Well, thankfully for all of us, that doesn't happen to us when we walk into church. 
But can you imagine what that would be like? I would, be, I would imagine that there are many people who have come to faith in Christ who at some level might describe themselves as kind of waning, malnourished, maybe some even starving. Because our spiritual lives are a little bit like the rest of life, the physical life that we experience. Our nutrition affects the experience of our life in this world. We hear stories of Auschwitz and places like that, and it still chills us to this day to imagine what those people endured. What kind of insane person would starve people to death or almost to death and then just wipe them out? You see, a lack of nutrition leads to starving, malnourished people. And this often happens in churches too. You see, God's word is enough for all that we need, but we cannot be growing followers of Jesus if we are not people who regularly consume the word. So this morning, I'd like us to look together at this idea how God's word is enough. And the first thing I'd like to consider is how it is that we get the word. As we walk through these verses, we're going to see this. There are two ways that we get the word. One is the author, kind of the, the, the big point of where we get the word. And the second is like how we consume the word on a personal basis. And so the first thing is the author of the word. How was the word of God written? Well, why is it that this book has a different power than other books? Why is it that these words are different than other words? How do they have the power to change lives? It's because the author of this book is God himself. You see, verse 16 tells us all scripture is God-breathed. This means that God breathed out the pages, the words that we have here, and they have come to us. God literally exhaled the ideas that have been passed down for centuries as the Christian faith. God did it in a remarkable way. He breathed out these words, but then he used human authors to write the words down, to record them, so that we have them here before us today. They're not just words that are God-breathed, though. They are eternal words. There are times we know where God appeared and God spoke, and yet those words God saw fit perhaps not to record in the same way, but these words are eternal words. They will never pass away. In fact, there are times when you look around and the physical world around us feels very real, very tangible. Can you like firm, like you can touch it? But Jesus was preaching in his longest sermon that we have recorded in the Word of God, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his disciples and other people gathered there, and he, and he teaches us the permanence of the Scripture, the permanence of the Word of God. And he says that heaven and earth may pass away. Now we know from the rest of Scripture that they will, this heaven and this earth, will pass away. But he says, not one dot. Not one jot of my word will pass away. It will stand forever. Heaven and earth and all that is in it may be burned up, but God's word will stand and it will stand forever. He says, it will not pass away until all is accomplished. If God said it, you can take it to the bank. It will happen. It will come to pass. So God's word is uniquely authoritative, uniquely powerful because God himself is the author. So there's the author. God wrote this book. And then we have this question, how then does the word come to us? So God wrote it. How does it come into our lives? Let's think about it this way. Uh, as, as you know, we're settling into our house. People will say, are you moved in? We say, well, all our stuff's in the house. It doesn't mean you're moved in. So you could come in and you could grab a box and sit on it if you wanted to. We've got stuff kind of flying around everywhere. 
And part of that is we've got more than enough things in our house, but we don't know where they all are. So you're trying to put your hand on things, and if you label the boxes, you know, you may or may not have labeled them well. In fact, last night I was looking for light bulbs, and I dug through a, a box about this size, and it had a list of things, including light bulbs on it. There was not a single light bulb in the box. So I don't know who labeled the box, but I couldn't find a light bulb inside. But last night we were, uh, we were kind of saying, hey, can't, you know, what do we need for this week? And Liz said, well, you know, it'd be good if we had this and this and this. And so she was uh, putting the kids down. I said, well, I'll run to the grocery store and grab some things. Well, you run into the grocery store, and what is that store full of? Food and, and stuff, right? Th- things that, household things, typically, that you need, and if you don't need, they convince you that you need them. So I walk into the store, and there are things on a shelf. So there's cereal, there's milk, there's meat, there's anything that you want, more than enough food to feed this entire room of people. Well, the question is, how do I get what's on the shelf to the table? So there, it's, it's one thing to know that there's food out there somewhere in a storage unit that we call a grocery store. It's another thing to actually sit down at the table and eat it. In fact, uh, this week, we enjoyed a number of things prepared by uh, members of the congregation, but one of our favorites was a pound cake fixed by uh, Sylvia Webb. Now, I'm a little bit strange in the way I like to eat cake. I like to eat it in a bowl with milk on it, so I'm sorry if that was a desecration to your cake, but, but I ate that cake with, with, uh, with some milk on it. Well, what that cake is, is a bunch of flour, sugar, and ingredients, right? But imagine you just plopped a pile of flour down on my, in my bowl. Well, you couldn't, you couldn't add enough milk to that by itself to make it taste good. It wouldn't taste, wouldn't taste good at all. But what happens is we take those ingredients from the shelf, from the store, and we combine them and we put them in a way that we can actually serve to someone. And when we do that, that person can consume it. So there's this step between, okay, it's out there, the, the food, the ingredients, the resources, they're there. They are objectively there. Well, how do we take those things and put them in a way that they can actually be consumed and do someone good, give them energy, for, so food that can provide energy? And that's what we're talking about here is the difference between food on the shelf and food on the table. Farm to table, what does that look like? So what we've talked about to this point is God's words. God wrote them. They're there. They're objectively there. Well, how do we take those words and get them into our lives? How do we take the words of God, the words that can do us good, and actually place them in our lives in a way that actually does us good? And so the second thing we're going to look at here is how the word comes to us. So how do we get it from the shelf to the table? Well, as we look at verses 14 and 15 here, we see some implications of things that Paul says elsewhere. So verse 14, he tells Timothy, who's a pastor, he says, continue in what you have learned. And then he makes this reference. So it's something he's learned that he says, knowing from whom you learned it. So what he tells us here is the word of God that you have that does you good, that is good enough, that is enough for everything you need, that is a word that you have learned. And it's not just something that Timothy learned on his own. Someone taught him this word. This word, it came to him somehow, and he says, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So what he's telling us there is this, that Timothy has this life of knowing the word of God, and from the time he was a little kid, someone has been teaching him these words, which automatically creates the question, who taught him? Who's he talking about? Well, take a moment and just flip back a page or two in your Bible or maybe scroll up a little bit on your phone there. Look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. 
So in chapter 3, he makes this reference. You know who you learned this from. Well, now look in 2 Timothy 1.5, and he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. He's talking about his faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So what he's saying here is that the life giving, nourishing word of God came to Timothy through the ministry of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. You see, there's the ultimate objective truth of Scripture. But what happens is that God uses secondary sources to place that word in our life. So there is more than enough food to feed all of God's people, but the question is, how does that food, how does that word come to a person? And in Timothy's case, it came through his mother and his grandmother. God uses humans to pass the word along to others. I mean, God's powerful enough. He could spit the gospel into everyone's life. He breathed out these words. He could breathe, but he uses, he gives us a chance to partner with him in the ministry of spreading his word. Well, this all sounds grand and glorious, but if you're a mom and you've got young kids and you spend your week wiping snotty noses, or dirty bottoms. It feels a little bit removed, doesn't it? And yet, remarkably, in this case, it's the mom who passed the faith on to her son. I mean, recognize that the greatest impact you have on the world may be the impact you have on the children in your home. The young lives that walk through the hallways here, up the aisle, or into a class, or the people that gather around your table, the word you are placing into their lives could be the greatest impact you have in the world. Well, the thing about cute little children is become, they become bigger, independent children. And as your children grow, what happens is you get stupider. Now, that's not really what happens, but that's what they think happens, Right? I mean, 12, 13, 14 come, and remarkably, they have gained more than your five decades of life experience and wisdom. They've got it all. 14, I got it figured out. And there's a period of, say, I don't know, 14, 15 till sometime 20s, hopefully not 30s, where it's like mom and dad get real dumb, and then they get smart again. There's this period of time where this happens. Well, you're a parent, and, and you can remember the season of life of pouring your life into a sweet little child where you're that child's hero, you're the most beautiful person in the world, you can do no wrong, and now you can do no right. You're like the, the person they don't want to be around. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is still true at that stage of life. That pouring your life, pouring the word into those children, emerging adults, may be the most impactful ministry you have. Because not only are you impacting that life, you are also impacting everyone who that life will touch. Because that, 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 that child, that teenager, that young adult... That person will impact the lives of others, and this is the way the gospel spreads. It's the way the word of God goes from the shelf to the table. It's the way the word of God goes from out there to in here. And if you're not a parent and you can't identify with any of this in terms of like kids and, and growing up, the truth is it's the way it works for all of us. We take the word of God and we feed it. We pour it into someone else's life. Maybe you've heard the story of John Newton. 
John Newton is most famous in the States for being the writer of perhaps the most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. But John Newton was an English pastor in only England. But before he was a pastor, he was a slave trader, a vicious slave trader who ran a disgusting ship. And it was actually one day as an adult, as a profligate, immoral man, when God woke him up through the memories of his childhood, of a mother who had spoken the truth of the gospel to him decades after he heard those words. God used the ministry of a mom who just spoke the word of God into her children's lives. She did it for John Newton. She did it for Timothy here. And God is still doing that today. So moms, don't give up. Lean into that relationship with your kids. So this is how the word comes to us. Secondly, what is it that the word does? The Bible has two primary effects in our life. The first of which is it leads us to Christ in verse 15. We need the word because the word leads people to God, or in the words of Paul here, it is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We're not here, or we don't know God because we're just so bright. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the wisdom of God to the natural mind is foolishness. So how is it that God takes something that sounds foolish, that the eternal God, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who has infinite power, infinite glory, infinite wealth, infinite anything that he wants, how is it that that God chose to pass through a a birth canal and become a baby? That sounds crazy. That sounds foolish. So how is it that God takes that story and convinces humans who are prone to suspect that that could actually happen and shows us that it's not foolishness. It's true. It's the wisdom of God. It's the gospel. Well, it's through the word of God. Paul tells us here that the word of God makes us wise for salvation. You see, the word is the lens through which we make sense of all that happens in the world. We can see and touch and taste and feel what's around us, but we can't truly make sense of it apart from God's word. God's word helps us see these things. And in John's gospel, John talks, he introduces us to Jesus Christ. And he says that there is, so that we have this word, the revelation of God, but John tells us in John chapter one that there is the word who is the revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God himself. We know God through the word, but we cannot truly know God apart from faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And then if you keep tracking through John's gospel, you come to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus is giving us different pictures to try to understand who he is. He's fully God. He's fully human. How is it that, how is it that these things work together? And he says, I'm the good shepherd. And how is it that the good shepherd relates to people? He says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. You see, what happens is when Jesus' words come to us, As sheep, we hear the voice of the shepherd and we want to follow the shepherd. Like Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. So what happens is throughout history, Jesus calls, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, believe, receive, come if you're thirsty, I'll give you drink and you'll never thirst again. And this is the message of hope throughout the generations and it's the same message here today. So you cannot rightly make sense of the world around you. You cannot rightly relate to God if you do not know God through faith in Jesus Christ. So you might be someone who's new here. 
you heard something's new going on, and so you came to church, and you're not normally in church. Well, first, thanks. Thanks for coming. It's not easy to walk into a, a new building full of people that you don't know. It's not an easy thing. Or you might be someone who comes regularly, week after week, and yet you do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, would you turn from your sin? Would you call out to Jesus to save you? He is your only hope. He is the only one who can rescue you from your self-seeking, from your trying to find meaning in yourself. Only through the gospel of Jesus Christ can you find true meaning. Would you turn and trust Jesus to save you? The gospel makes us wise for salvation. It also equips us for every good work, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says that Scripture is profitable. Now, (laughs) we live in a world where people unfortunately kind of twist this. There are some people who think that this kind of profit means having a, a Learjet and a, a nice boat and maybe a $14 million mansion. That's not what we're talking about here. This word doesn't mean that you become wealthy. It means that it's useful. It does us good. It's like eating good food. The, the word is nutritious, basically. Scripture does us good. It's like the, uh, the old cartoon, which it's probably mid-20th century, and I haven't seen it in two or three decades, but uh, Popeye going around fighting bad guys. He's weak, right? So for the, if it's a 10-minute cartoon, for eight minutes, he's weak. And then what happens? Someone gets him a can of spinach. He pops up at the top, and he drains the spinach, and he says, I fight to the finish because I eat me spinach, right? The spinach does him good. It's nutritious. Well, God's Word tells us that the Word itself is, it does us good. It makes us strong. And then we see the result of this in verse 17. So it does us good, it's profitable, it's nutritious. That, verse 17, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the result of the word of God digging deep into our souls is that we are equipped to do the work that God has called us to do. And the word here is emphatic, it's very clear. It's not some good works, it is every good work work. There is not a single thing that God has called you to do or God will call you to do that he will not equip you to do through the power of his spirit, through the word of God. There are no exceptions. There's nothing that God will call you to do that he will not equip you to do. Even if like Moses, you're thinking, I'm not going to walk in there and talk to Pharaoh. God will equip you for the work that he calls you to do. And there are four specific ways that God equips us first through teaching. The word teaches us. It's, it's the primary source through which we establish the Christian faith. Personal testimonies of how God calls people to faith in Christ are important, and they're a powerful component in our relationships. And yet, apart from the word of God, those testimonies can't do us good. The word itself is the power of God. It comes to us through people. It must be submitted to and consistent with the word of God. The Bible teaches us everything that we need for life and godliness is here. Secondly, it reproves us. Now this, it's not a word that we use every day. A word that you might be more familiar with is it rebukes us. This kind of carries a a twofold meaning, a double meaning. One is it rebukes false teaching. It corrects bad doctrine. But then it also rebukes sin in our lives. Now, if you're like me, that doesn't sound good. I don't enjoy rebuke. I never have. You know, from the time I was a, a, little, a little guy like Joseph to, to today, I mean, rebuke is a tough thing. But we're about to embark on a new school year, and a few of you maybe even started in the last week or so. And what happens is uh, at the end of summer kind of comes early so that as you're preparing, if you play fall, fall sports, at the end of summer you have what? You have preseason. 
Preseason, at least in my memory, is the worst part of the season because it's the time when the coach just drills you and drills you and drills you. Uh, I can remember times just losing my lunch. It's just, a, it's just a brutal time of life, that training. Well, if, if, if all that coach is doing to you is, is making you swim laps or run laps or do drills and there's no point to it, it kind of sounds sadistic, doesn't it? But what is the point of all of that pain? It's, it's the goal at the end. It's, it's kicking the ball in the net. It's shooting the ball through the hoop. It's kicking the ball through the uprights. It's, it's touching first before someone else completes their lap. You see, there's, there's a goal at the end. There's a prize at the end, and it's that prize that makes it worth it. That's why sometimes we might say, that hurts good. It's a good hurt. The, the, the chest, the pain in your chest as you're sucking more air in or, the, or your muscles as they ache the next morning or as mine did uh, Thursday and Friday morning after moving all this stuff into our house Probably some of you joined me in that. Thanks for you who helped. So, 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 but that, that, that feeling, that pain, well, a broken leg is just pain. It doesn't hurt good. It just hurts. But there's a kind of exercising and exercising into godliness that's a good hurt. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Because we're proud people, because I'm a proud person, I don't like to hear that God is resisting proud people. Like when my heart is proud, I'm good. I want God to accept me. But God says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's a hard truth. Or when my words are filled with pride or cruelty or cutting remarks, I don't want to be confronted right then with the truth that God commands us to speak in a way that gives grace to those who hear. That's a gift to those who hear. You see, in that moment, what I want to hear that what I'm doing is okay, but God's word rebukes us and says, no, no, no. That's not God's design for the way we relate to one another. But God doesn't just leave us there. He also corrects us. It's, it's, it's building from rebuke to correction. It's kind of restoration to a right state. See, God isn't just about telling us all the ways that we're wrong. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I mean, imagine. So we've got our, our youngest uh, little guy is two. And keeping up with him can be quite an adventure. He's on the go, go, go all the time. In fact, we were talking last night about putting some stuff away. I was like, well, it doesn't really matter where you put that because he'll climb up there and get that. That's just the stage of light that he's in. Is he's climbing, going all the time. Well, imagine that his parents, all we ever did was slap Joseph on the hand and tell him, no, 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 no. And he never had any idea of what we actually wanted him to do. All he knew was the things he shouldn't do. And we never told him, okay, you know, this, this is what you can do. Well, this is the idea here. There's this rebuking. No, don't go there. That's dangerous. But then there's a correction. Here, th- this, is, this is good. There, d- do this. And so it corrects us. It trains us. It puts us in, in the right path. There's a beautiful illustration of this uh, in God's word in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But he goes beyond that and he says, he restores my soul. So God isn't just someone who kind of rebukes and leaves us hanging insecurely. He, he sets us in a safe place. He's a shepherd and his word does this for us. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So the word of God is like this. It's like we're cruising down the highway and you've got those guards on the side and if you hit those little ridges, you go zzz, you can hear that vibrating, right? That keeps you from, from running off the road. God's word is like that. But it's not just there to say, bad person, bad person, bad person. He's, he's not just, the, he, he's saying, Here, here's the path of righteousness. He's leading us to paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's, it's a gentle correcting. It's, it's, a, it's a training us. And that's, that's the next thing we see, that the word trains us. 
It trains us in righteous living. The idea is that God's word instills in us moral discipline to, to submit to God's revealed will. So what you see here, these four steps, there's this process, there's this teaching. What is God's design for your life? Then there's this rebuke. God stops us on the path to destruction. He rescues us in his mercy. Then there's this correction, there's this, there's this placing us back on the path, and then there's this training, this exercising in righteousness, the ongoing process of walking with Christ. It's the same thing that we see in Ephesians 6 verse 4 when, fathers, when, when, when Paul tells fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word discipline is the same word we have here, training. It's train your children how to live, and that's what the word of God does for us as God's children. You see, God's children are like sheep, Isaiah says. We've all gone astray. And so what happens is God uses the hook of his word to bring us back, to keep us from plunging over the precipice to our destruction. The word is what trains us and teaches us how to walk with Christ. Over and over and over again, the word brings us back to Christ. This is true for us in coming to faith in Christ, make you wise for salvation. And it's true in walking with Christ, equipping you for every good work. God's word does all of these things. You see, brothers and sisters, God's word is enough. If we want to be spiritually growing followers of Jesus who lead other people to Christ, then we must be people of the word. We must be committed to the word. We must be committed to the word in our worship. We must be committed to the word in our lives. God's words and God's ideas govern every aspect of our lives, and so we gladly embrace them. So as we close now, would you take a minute to think about the role that the Word of God plays in your life? Are you like one of those people in the concentration camp, malnourished, starving, and needing nutrition? Let's think about the way we should respond to the Word in repentance and faith. So let's just take a moment now. I'll give you a moment to pray silently in your seat for just a moment, and then I'll close this in prayer. Would you talk to God now about your relationship to His Word? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given it to us for our good. God, help us be people of the word. It's enough for all that we need. God, I pray for those that don't know you through faith in Christ. You would open their eyes to trust Jesus. And God, for us who are your people, God, equip us for every good work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Every time God's word is preached, we have an opportunity to respond to the word, to repent of areas in our life that need correction and to follow God anew in fresh faith. If you're here this morning and uh, you want to talk to us about the gospel, about knowing Jesus, we'd love to have a chance to do that. Or if there's any other way that we can serve you, if you'd like to consider becoming a part of this congregation through uh, baptism or church membership, we'd love to talk with you about that as well. We'll have you stand as we sing, as we prepare to respond to the word. Would you stand, please, together?